You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, this is Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, here with my two darling co-hosts, Dr. Susan Hudson, Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. How are you girls doing? Doing good. Doing great. Glad to be back together again for after a while. I know it's been it's been a couple weeks, and this week we are um, we're joined by Melissa Connolly, who is an LGBTQ content creator um, and who spends a lot of time focusing on her journey to building her family. Um, and her Instagram handle is at Missy Hallie, M-I-S-S-Y-H-A-L-L-E. Um, and so we are very excited to have you here, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me join you. So tell us a little bit about how, before we talk about your journey as a whole, tell us a little bit about how you became a content creator. Um, so like very many people in the world, I had, you know, an Instagram and a Facebook primarily used to keep in touch with friends, family, and loved ones. And fast forward to 2020 and a pandemic, um, I was suddenly working from home and missing interacting with, with people and seeing faces. And so I lock an introvert in a room long enough by herself and she'll figure out a way to make new friends. And so I changed, um, my platform to public and started sharing the story of how my wife and I won a free wedding. I, it's it's not like you'll, you'll ever hear that phrase again, but we won a free oh, wedding. Wow. And I wanted to share the journey. How do you win a wedding? Yeah. Well, how do you win a wedding? <laughs> So uh, there was an incredible nonprofit called Ray of Love. It still exists. Um, that was giving away a wedding, and I happened to have come across um, the the website that said, you know, Northeast Ohio wedding giveaway. Uh, while we were flying back from a business trip, and I was like, oh my goodness, we're engaged. I would love to win a free wedding, uh, and I entered. Um, you could either enter via essay or video. I sent in a video, and out of seventy-eight other entrants, my wife and I were chosen um, to win a free wedding. And so, huge blessing! It was it was amazing. Um, the nonprofit had teamed up with a bunch of wedding vendors who each donated their services to create one dream wedding for a couple. Uh, uh, and. So I wanted to share the journey and, and and show some love to the vendors that partnered together to make our day perfect. And people really became invested in our story leading up to our wedding. And before you knew it, what was originally um, a very limited platform based off of only people that I personally knew for the last year and a half coming up on two years, it's grown to 30,000 people that have been with myself and my wife through our wedding, through our fertility journey, uh, and now who are celebrating with us um, now that we've had our daughter, Breslin, who was born just over two weeks Yay. ago. That's so awesome. Right. Yeah, thank you. Was the, was the planning the wedding journey? I mean, I'm just thinking about... Granted, it's been 10 years now, but planning planning our wedding, it was it was just a mess of phone calls and emails. And this is before texting was really huge. And so it was all so did you just get to kind of show up and it was like <laughs> it happens. Yeah, like did um, you have to plan everything? 
we did not actually have to plan anything. So the great part about having pre-chosen vendors were um, there was a vendor who provided the the wedding space, the venue. There was uh, someone who provided the cake. We still got to do the cake tasting and pick our own flavors and what the cake looked like. Um, but a lot of those things were already in the works so we didn't have to research, you know, who's who's the best person for cakes, who's the great person for invitations that was taken off of our plates. Um, so we really got to enjoy the process of having, you know, creative license to make our dreams uh, come come to life. So it was a really great experience. Um, one that I don't think either of us will ever forget. So what was your favorite part about your wedding? Like the one thing that you just when you think about it, you're like, wow, I really loved that one detail on the dress or that one part of the cake or that one moment that somebody put together? It's so difficult to just choose one. Um, I feel like when you're so in awe of the gift that was given, each part of it, I think, stands out as something that's incredibly memorable. Um, I will say that the space that we had our ceremony at um, outside, it was... um, an outdoor park. It was Colby Park in Woodcliffe, Ohio. And it had a fountain that had steps that led up to it where it had two different entrances. So my wife and I got to enter on two different sides of the park, walk towards each other, Aww. meet in the middle and go up the stairs together um, to, to join our lives. And, and that was really, really beautiful. It was exquisite. We had um, an uncharacteristically sunny weekend in Ohio. <laughs> Cleveland, the sun does not shine. And this whole weekend was 80 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. Aww for the entirety of the weekend. So I think that that just... That's pretty for Ohio. Yeah. I know, right? Uh, So it was was perfection. So I have a question. After you got married, is that when you kind of started doing... No, you said, I guess, before you got married is when you started doing the Instagram thing. And so what kind of was the trigger thing that really made your Instagram kind of blow up? Because, I mean, you said you had 30,000 followers, which is really impressive. We got married in September. And by the end of the year, I had already hit 10,000. And mind you, I started at around about 500. So I think... Leading up to the wedding, I kept seeing the numbers increase just as we were sharing, you know, um, uh, what we were up to yeah. and pictures and people were so excited for us and the dress <laughs> reveal and, you know, we were writing our own vows. And then I saw that number spike after we got married because everyone wanted to see the pictures and you have that visibility for, you know, a same-sex couple. Yeah. You've got the diversity because I'm, I'm Black. My wife is Korean American. And so I think that there's that whole element of visibility that isn't very frequently seen online and people really connected with that. That's awesome. Cool. Thank you. All right. So we are going to do question of the week and then we'll talk a little bit more about your journey. So Susan, what do you have? Okay. So our question this week is, hi, my husband and I are both 21 and have had five early losses all before six and a half weeks. After the third loss, I was diagnosed via surgery with moderate endometriosis, but unfortunately my doctor didn't remove any of it because he decided he didn't feel comfortable removing that much. I'm now seeing a fertility doctor and he doesn't want to put my body through surgery again. He's telling me to just keep trying, which isn't working. All my tests are normal. It's been 17 months since my first loss with trying for about 14 out of 17 months. When should I see another opinion? Is IVF my next option? I feel so lost. Wow, that's a lot to go through. I mean, 
Well, and it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, she's talking about recurrent pregnancy loss. And then on the other hand, she's talking about endometriosis. And a lot of times those don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, typically, there's a lot of other things that you would check for recurrent pregnancy loss. And so, you know, I think if somebody hasn't done it yet, probably she needs to have a workup for recurrent pregnancy loss to make sure there's not some sort of genetic. I mean, that's sort of the thing that jumps at the front of my mind is, is there some sort of genetic thing like a translocation where a piece of one chromosome switches places with another chromosome? Um, some people say that's the first test you should do for recurrent pregnancy loss. And some people say it's the last because it's so expensive. But if you do that test and you find out that you carry that translocation, then absolutely IVF would kind of be your next step. But I think there's a whole workup for recurrent pregnancy loss. And I think that's really where I would start first is talk to your doctor about maybe doing that first. And the basic parts of a recurrent pregnancy loss evaluation are going to be chromosomes on both partners, um, checking for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, checking for thyroid dysfunction, making sure prolactin levels normal. And then sometimes people add on kind of the basic fertility evaluation because sometimes diminished ovarian reserve and things like that could actually be contributing factors. But those things I mentioned are going to be kind of the high points of what you really should take a look at. And I would kind of agree with your docs on how the endo component of that has played out. Like the fact that your surgeon recognized from the beginning, I am not the right doc to take this out is very helpful. Um, and, and I think in a lot of cases, your REI is also appropriate in saying, look, doing another surgery is not necessarily going to help. Um, I was able to hear a lecture by one of the one of the really foremost speakers on endometriosis this past weekend. And, and he was really commenting on how the stage of endometriosis doesn't necessarily impact what happens next, both with respect to pain and fertility, and that taking it out, it's, it's going to recur within the next two years, generally anyway. And so you, you have to be really mindful of that when you make the decision to go to surgery. And so doing more surgery is not necessarily going to help you get where you want to be. And so I agree with, with the other two that, um, that doing an RPL workup for recurrent pregnancy loss makes a lot of sense in this case. All right, perfect. So Melissa, tell us, now that we know how you got married and the circumstances <laughs> behind that, which are pretty fabulous in and of their own. Right? Yeah. Um, Tell us, tell us a little bit about your discussion with your wife as you were leading up to, okay, we want to start our family. How do we get there? Like, what were the initial discussions that you guys had? What were the strong opinions and what were the, well, crap, we don't know. We better figure it out. My wife and I uh, were on the same page in regards to growing our family. We both knew that we wanted children. Um, and I, I think the most difficult portion of that conversation uh, was my timeline. I am very type A. <laughs> I was like, I would like to be married for a year before we start trying. And uh, my wife was like, um, with all due respect, do you remember how old you are? <laughs> and and, and I, I think that that was a very humbling question for me. I turned 39 this year. And so she was like, you know, if, if by chance you wait an entire year and then it turns out that you don't fall pregnant easily yeah. and there's a lot more testing involved or we end up having to try for longer, you said you wanted kids before 40. Well, 40 is right around the corner knocking at the door. So... Um, when she pointed that out, it, it really did bring into perspective uh, how how abbreviated that timeline was going to become. So um, I agreed with her. My wife is younger than I am. So we mutually decided that I should try to become pregnant first as we both want to carry. But my window, as you know, is a little bit shorter. Um, so at the end of 2021, I was like, okay, January, we're going to start. 
Um, and COVID was obviously still a thing. So we ended up not beginning our, our search until March. So in March, we uh, decided to go with the medical facility we were you know, both currently using for um, general healthcare practitioners. They also had a fertility uh, program there. And so we, I went to go get the testing done um, to begin our journey with IUI. And did you guys have all the discussions straight up before you got to your REI, or was it discussions with your REI that said we're gonna we're gonna start with IUI first? We had those discussions, um, just the two of us. Obviously, we looked at our health, and like most people, um, IVF at the time was not covered. IUI was covered by my health insurance, and statistically, we chose to surpass uh, ICI at home insemination just because the the rates of success are so much slower. Mm-hmm. Right? And uh, the cost of, of sperm vials is actually quite high. So obviously, you're looking for something that has a higher efficacy. So that's where we we mutually discussed it and said, you know, IUI is kind of that happy middle where, you know, it's not as costly as IVF. It's more effective than ICI. Let's go ahead and, and loop in uh, healthcare professionals and see what that journey would look like for us doing IUI. When you first met with your reproductive endocrinologist, were you surprised or anticipating that they would have you do an evaluation just to check things out? I know sometimes I have same-sex couples and they're like, what do you mean you have to check out anything? I, I should be fine. So this this was what I found interesting. And this is why we ended up leaving um, the clinic that we used for IUI and using a different clinic for IVF is they did not do any initial checkup. There were, they legitimately said, okay, track your ovulation, write it down. You're going to call when you get the peak high and we'll go ahead and inseminate. What they did make us do was they had to sit down uh, with uh, a psychologist who had to sign off on um, us, you know, being in good mental sound health in order to proceed. That I did find interesting. Um, and I, I feel as though at the time we both questioned, does everybody using a third-party donor have to go through these steps? Um, is, is it targeted because we're a same-sex couple? We have to be evaluated. There were those lingering questions. Um, but I was very concerned that there was a very minimal health workup required uh, for IUI. So I would like to make a comment, though, for our listeners. So this um, kind of discussion with the psychologist actually is something that is recommended by our National Society, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, um, to talk about disclosure, non-disclosure, how to tell, who to tell, when to tell, all those kinds of things. And it actually, it it is not targeting same-sex couples Mm -hmm, in any way. It's all people using any type of third-party reproduction. So donor eggs, donor sperm, gestational carriers, um, donor embryos, you name it. And so I know at least for the three of our practices, we do have it. I I know that that is not absolutely universal, but it is is actually, I, I think, a good practice. It's recommended by SRM, yeah, yeah, for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. A lot of people find it somewhat useful. Yeah. It was really beneficial. We actually really, really loved the process. There were things that came up in conversation with our psychologist that we actually hadn't considered. Um, obviously, when we're raising our daughter, I think we, out of everyone, would have to explain, we use a third-party donor to conceive you. So, so that part we already knew, but in considering the likelihood that our, our child ends up dating someone who is their biological sibling, 
one of the things that was pointed out to us from our psychologist, because we were like, oh, we'll make sure, you know, that she doesn't date anyone of Asian heritage <laughs> with same-sex parents. And she said, she said, no, it's the parents that are, are opposite sex that frequently don't tell their children they've used a third-party donor. Those are the families where there's less disclosure. And I, it was mind-blowing to me. And I was like, I've never even remotely thought about that perspective or, or, or that being the case. So I feel like we were able to kind of practice, you know, conversations and how we would broach the topic uh, with our child. So we came out of it feeling uh, like we had more information than we did going into it. So it was great for us. And what did you guys think about or talk about in regards to legal ramifications of being a same-sex couple, kind of things that you needed to consider going into this? So we didn't actually speak um, about the legal ramifications because uh, it was it was broached. Hey, are you both going to be on the birth certificate? Um, it was pretty top line um, through additional research, especially with you know the overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's where I think we really started delving into what do we need to do in order to legally protect our family um, from power of attorney yeah. before delivery, all the way through second parent adoption which, you know, the legality varies by state. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, in Ohio, we do not actually have to have the at-home visit for second parent adoption. It's a little bit different within the county we live in. Um, so, so that's a weight off of our shoulders. Um, but it is something that sadly, I think a lot of people are unaware that they should have in place. So just out of curiosity, so you guys were both able to put both of your names on the birth certificate? We are, we are both on the birth certificate. Interesting. Is that unique to your state? Or do you know if that's something that other couples can do? It varies from state to state. It yeah, is state it by is. state. Yeah, I've never heard of that in Tennessee. So that's cool. That's really great. It was it was a really defining moment to look at that birth certificate and see both of our names on there under mother. I, I, I shed tears of joy, <laughs> not going to lie. There Aww. are pre-birth orders that you can get in many states, certainly not every state, but um, sometimes those pre-birth orders are really helpful. And I know when I've talked with the lawyers here in Nevada, they know exactly which county to file the paperwork in so that it goes through quickly so that like they have it kind of established so that when the parents get there, it's just all set and ready to go and there's very little hassle involved. So, so I'm glad that you guys were able to get it done ahead of time so that there was no drama when you actually got got the paperwork and it was set and ready to go. And can you talk a little bit more to Melissa about kind of what you guys did after your child was born after your daughter was born or So after um after our daughter was born, um, we went ahead and we met with our attorney to finalize the paperwork that we had started before I got sent to the hospital the same day. <laughs> So we, we, we had put into motion, you know, power of attorney, um, a living will, all of those things before I, I went into labor. Um, and we had gotten the paperwork that referred to our child as unborn, you know, offspring of, and we had gotten that done. It wasn't filed yet. So when our daughter was born, we went back to the attorney, signed all of the relevant paperwork. Um, in our state, we did need the birth certificate in order to get the second parent adoption paperwork filed. Mm -hmm. Luckily, um, I got that within 10 days. I went you know, downtown to go get the birth certificate, which was really speedy, according to my attorney. <laughs> and so she, I was up and out of the house. Um, so she is in the process of actually filing that. Um, it should not be that lengthy of a process, but we do have all of our paperwork with the exception of the second parent adoption finalized. So, And I, th I think that's an important thing to kind of understand when you're in same-sex relationships is that laws that protect same-sex marriage do not 
not transferred parentage. Like that's a whole mm-hmm. different legal mm-hmm. bond. Yeah. And so kind of being prepared to, if you're planning to co-parent your children legally, that 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 is part of the process that you should travel during your pregnancy. So I want to backtrack a little bit. When you and your wife were looking for sperm donors, how did those conversations go? And how did that search go as you were looking at it? Because um, I always tell my patients, look, this is online shopping at its finest. Even if your clinic is is right next door to the the sperm bank, you're probably never going to set foot there because everything is done online. And so, um, so the discussions are frequently like, look, get, get your favorite beverage, sit down with your computer, with your significant other and go online shopping. And Um, did you ever consider a known donor? So this was probably one of the most fun portions of, of the trying to see process was picking our donor. Um, so we used, uh, exactly, California Cryobank, um, who we felt had a very large selection. And so when we sat down, we did grab a beverage of choice, <laughs> sat down with a laptop. And my wife and I are an interracial couple. So I'm Black. My wife is Korean-American. Um, and we wanted our child to be a reflection of, of both of our ethnicities. So Number one, when we sat down, opened up the entire website, and we started by narrowing the donor down to someone who was Korean. From there, we switched to education. Um, we switched to uh, someone that had photos of themselves as as a baby, so we could see obviously what they looked like as a child. Um, and it, as we went on, it narrowed it down. We uh, really had a great time listening to um, somewhat of an audio biography where we actually got to listen to our donor talk about themselves. Oh, and, that's kind of neat. Um, yeah. So that was that was probably our favorite part um, yeah. was our donor was speaking about his relationship with family. And, you know, he's a firefighter and felt a call to serve and went backpacking across the United States for a summer. And there were a lot of similarities to my wife in that aspect. She went backpacking, you know, halfway across the US and she's a nurse. So she also feels that altruistic call to serve. So there were a lot of similarities that we loved. Um, And we had the expanded medical history, which was really, really important. Um, So I have sickle cell trait. Mm -hmm. Typically, uh, uh, people that are predominantly Asian do tend to have um, hemoglobin issues. Mm -hmm. And so if you take sickle cell trait and you combine it with somebody who has any bloodborne uh, diseases, you know, it, you can end up with a child who's fatally anemic. So we wanted to make sure that we chose someone who had the extended background mm-hmm. check uh, done. And so we were able to factor out any of those concerns. So we ended up choosing a donor um, that we both felt really, really comfortable with. We felt as though if we were to have met him, uh, it would be somebody we could see ourselves being friends with. So it was it was a great journey, uh, the two of us really sitting down and narrowing that down. So I have a question. Um, because you were looking for someone with Korean heritage and that type of thing, I, I know that I've had a lot of patients in, in the past who've kind of struggled when they're looking for more ethnically diverse um, donors. What was your experience? So my wife is half Korean and half Irish. And so originally we were like, let's see if we can find someone who Korean and Irish did not work. We're either going to go exactly way too specific. And so uh, we had the conversation, you know, which part of your ethnicity do you feel is more important for you to have reflected in our child? Yeah. And for her, you know, her, her father has passed her mother 
is is Korean. Her brother's very Korean presenting. And so she was like, you know, I would love it if our child could see themselves reflected back in the family that they're surrounded by. So I think that that made the decision a little bit easier for us to really come to terms with it. The fact that we couldn't find the perfect blend, but we did find a blend that worked for our family. So when you were having those discussions, because you said that you wanted, you want ultimately for both of you to carry, mm-hmm. had you guys had the discussion from the beginning saying, okay, we're going to do one sperm donor and then a separate sperm donor so that every, so that each child is fully reflective of both moms. Um, Cause some women will, will decide, look, we want our, our children to be full um, to be siblings from the same donor. And so it's always interesting to me to watch who wants separate donors and who wants the same donors. Like did that, was that discussion easily throughout the process? So that's a discussion I feel like we still circle back on and touch base on for, for two very specific reasons. So we were trying to make a pros and cons list for choosing the same donor for both of our children versus choosing different donors. Um, and our one concern for choosing um, different donors was, you know, what happens one donor, we chose, we chose a, um, a donor that our children have the option to contact at 18 mm-hmm. and, and, and have some sort of a relationship with. And we had that plan regardless of what donor we chose. That's one of the things that we wanted. So my concern was what happens if one child's donor is very, very welcoming at 18 mm-hmm. and, and has a great fostered relationship. The other child is not as fortunate. What kind of animosity does that build yeah. with sibling? On the other end, if we decided same donor, which obviously we've used the Korean donor, what kind of animosity could you have between siblings if one of them presents as Black and Asian, one presents entirely as Asian, how they navigate through the world and have the world interact with them? Mm -hmm. What is that? Do they still have a shared experience as how they go through life? Or is there Mm -hmm. possibly animosity there because they have a very different, um, I I guess, different relationship uh, with others based off of visual perception? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we felt it was more it was more important for us that they had a shared experience as that they navigate through the world as how they relate to both of us. So we're planning on using two different donors um, as opposed to the same. Fascinating. Did you guys at ever point any or at any point ever think about using a known donor, somebody that you guys both knew and were good friends with or? So no, we didn't. I don't think that either of us happens to have had very close relationships with anyone who fell within the the ethnic demographic that we were looking for. Um, It's easier said than done. Our our closest friends, sadly, are are neither Korean nor Black. So I was like, well, there you have it. Doesn't work. It it would have been great uh, to be able to do that. But I think that also brings into question, you know, how do you communicate with your child on the role that person plays genetically and Mm -hmm. as they grow up? um, Do you disclose that information? is Is it just an uncle? Um, so we just went with, um, with somebody that is anonymous, but at the same time, having the ability to be known at 18. Yeah. I think a lot of times for patients or some patients will come into it thinking, Oh, it'd be great to use our good friend as a donor. And then when they realize all the difference that they have to do, it's just a lot more involved and tends to be a lot more expensive. And a lot of people decide that's just not a great route to go overall. Mm-hmm. So I have a question about your actual fertility journey. So so we, we know you did IUI and you ended up getting pregnant with IVF. And so I, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that because I, I know that it's often challenging coming in being like, okay, all I need is sperm. And 
<laughs> and it may not always turn out that way. And, and so can you can you kind of describe how you navigated your journey? So as I said, we started with IUI. And I do think that there was um, a, a part of me that thought, we've got sperm, bing, bang, boom. <laughs> and that is not, in fact, the way yeah. Out. Uh, so, you know, IUI number one was even though you know statistically that the odds <laughs> are not in your favor, it was still a crushing blow to sit there, take the test, and not see the two lines. Um, and so, you know, you recoup, you take a moment to, to grieve. And then you try again. And, and the second time that we tried also was unsuccessful. And again, it, it was it was a little heartbreaking because at that point, I, I, I had had every pregnancy symptom that you could possibly have. And we were so convinced. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, I got my period and we were not pregnant. Um, so with that said, that was March and April. And I didn't feel like they had done enough testing. Um, and I was like, you know, I, I just wish that they they would do more testing. So I was in the process of of requesting, you know, additional tests through um the fertility well, it was the healthcare system. It was a hospital system that we were using. And my company announced in May that they were changing the fertility <laughs> coverage. They had added fertility coverage to our existing health insurance. And it was going into effect June 1st and it would cover IVF. And I I wish I could explain to you the overwhelming joy <laughs> relief and and just just downright glee uh, at finding that out. And so I started doing my research on actual fertility clinics, not hospital systems with fertility services. And I came across uh, Reproductive Gynecology and Fertility of Ohio. That's who we ended up using. And Dr. David Nash was amazing. I, I read all of their calling to see who had you know the least gap in appointment scheduling uh, because obviously we wanted to start the process sooner rather than later. And we ended up having our, our consultation on June 4th. So that tells you how prompt I was. The coverage started on the 1st. We went on the 4th. <laughs> it was really nice of you letting them to get the insurance processed. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. I was like, allow, you know, 72 hours before I go in. <laughs> um, and so we went in and more or less, he went ahead and he took a look at my medical records and was like, okay, you know, um, based off of what you've had done, um, you know, what are your goals? What would you like uh, from, you know, your fertility journey with more than one child? And I, I just felt like he asked a lot of questions. Um, we jumped right into, you know, testing that day. I felt as though I was heard. Um, and that's what really kicked off our IVF journey. Well, I think one really great thing was he was really proactive because, and you know this, going, you, know, you mentioned earlier your age. And you know, a lot of people, particularly if they've not really had a lot of opportunities to get pregnant, are like, well, we'll just keep trying the same thing for several more months. And, and, and that's not really a bad choice if you're, if you're in your early 30s. But if in your late 30s, no matter what, it's, your eggs are, are older and it takes longer for you to get pregnant. And IVF is the quickest route to pregnancy you know, for anybody. So I think that's great that he was really proactive and talked to you about it. I think it's great that you were really proactive and, and sought that out, actually. I was so glad that that I made that decision, um, to be honest. And and he was very, very... What, the thing that I loved about doctors was he was very blunt, if you will. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who doesn't need things to be sugarcoated. I just want to know statistically, what are the yeah. best odds? Where do we stand the biggest chance? And he was like, you know, you could go the route with medicated IUI. Or we could go IVF. And I'm not sure, you know, whether you want to try medicated IUI for said, does it or does it not increase the odds of multiples? Because I've heard that it does. And he said, yes, it does slightly. And I said, nix that, we're doing IVF. I was like, <laughs> I, I would like one child at a time. Um, so 
We went ahead and got all of the preliminary, you know, uh, exams done and whatnot. And um, yeah, it was it was very quick. Um, I'm not going to say it was easy shooting yourself in the bum with PIO shots. <laughs> never easy. Um, but it, it definitely was a, a journey and a path that I'm so very glad that we took. Did you guys have any discussions once you decided, okay, IVF is covered. This is what we're going to do. Did you have any discussions at that point about shared maternity where you get eggs from one woman and the other carries, especially knowing that both of you want to ultimately give eggs and both of you want to carry? Did you ever talk about, okay, we're going to, we're going to flip flop? So we did talk about RIVF. RIVF, um, for a couple of reasons, we didn't go with that. So my wife would have had to have been at the time on my health insurance, which she was not in order to do RIVF and have it covered. Um, and because we had already gotten married and there was no change in life circumstances, I could not add her at the mid-year point. Yeah. So we would have had to pay out of pocket for it. Second, my wife is a nurse and she was travel nursing at the time, not in the state. Mm -hmm. And you have to go to the doctor every two days <laughs> to have like blood work done and, and, and checking on hormones and whatnot. Yep. Um, so at the time, it just wasn't feasible for multiple reasons for us to try RIVF. Um, and so we ended up just doing IVF. Very cool. So were you able to go through and like you said, not not that it's ever easy, but was it fairly straightforward in terms of retrieval and then transfer? Did you need to go through multiple iterations of anything to get to your end goal of a healthy pregnancy? It was it was actually very, very straightforward. Um, again, my doctor was very blunt and very fact. So we went through, we um, you know, I was on all of the fertility medications, we uh, retrieved 14 eggs, which I was thrilled that that's we had that fabulous. many. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yeah, for 39, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, that's what we thought. Uh, <laughs> and I still do, except for that number dropped dramatically. It went from 14 to two. Yeah, and yeah, normally the numbers, you know, reduce, I was expecting by about 50%. So to go from 14 to two that fertilized properly um, and, and matured. And then we ended up with one blastocyst, one. Um, how many, so how many that, did you have fertilized on day one out of the 14? Uh, we had two, two. You only had two fertilized out of the 14? Yeah, that is a, that's a big drop. Wow. That's a huge, huge drop. drop. One normal is pretty normal though. I mean, that's, that's great at 39 that you had one that was normal ultimately. But yeah, huge yeah. drop on the first day. And so, you know, I had that conversation with, with Dr. Nash. He said, you know, would you like to try another retrieval? And I, I said, you know, let's go ahead, do the, the PGA testing to see if it's, you know, a genetically normal embryo. And, oh, it came back genetically normal. Aww. So I was celebrating, um, was so, so excited. And then we sat down and had, you know, a, a very upfront conversation about options from that point. He was like, you know, you have one embryo. And I know that you want to throw everything in the kitchen sink to make it as successful as possible. Um, there is a test called the ERA test, endometrial receptivity assessment, I believe it stands for. Um, he was like, am I saying that you need this? No. Am I saying that it's going to improve your chances? It might. Um, but my question to you is, if you don't do the test and it doesn't work, are you always going to regret the fact that you didn't do it? And to me, I was like, oh, I would be loathing central. I was like, I... I don't need to, to, to be that harsh on myself. So, you know, let's, let's go ahead and do the test. So that pushed our timeline back a month to do the mock cycle. Um, the assessment back, everything was all to go. We didn't need to alter the progesterone or the timing. You know, um, the condition of my endometrium was fantastic. So we went ahead and we did the transfer. We did 10 days. I knew before the 10-day blood test um, that I was pregnant, but 
it, it worked. Uh, the one, the one embryo that could, as as we like to call our daughter. So <laughs> that's great. I was so that's awesome. You had a beautiful journey. Yes, a fantastic journey. Yeah, that is so so beautifully straightforward and um and it sounds like it wasn't not that it was easy like you said but it it wasn't overly traumatic as you were going through it i mean it sounds like a very a very typical journey of many couples going through this um was there anything as you're looking back on it now that strikes you as this was this was a lot easier than or this part was a lot easier than what i anticipated it Yes, it definitely was. I think the one thing that stands out when I, I hear people talk about IVF is that IVF does not guarantee you pregnancy and it does not guarantee you a baby. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people that have done IVF that ended up having to do more than one round. I, I have good friends that are currently in the IVF process. And so I tried to keep in mind, you know, um, you know, the statistics and, and the fact that it, it's not promised. And so we went in hopeful, but we're trying to manage our expectations. So for me, when I look back, I'm just I'm just grateful that that we only had to do the one round um, and that we had success on the first time. I'm, yes. I'm so very grateful. What is something you wish you would have known then that you know now? That you have to do the PIO shots all the way to week 10 of pregnancy. That's what I wish <laughs> I had known. I mean, those... But would it have changed happen. anything though? Would it have changed anything? No, no, <laughs> it would not have changed anything. But I, I remember, you know, when we did the transfer being like, yes, I'm done with shots. And Dr. Nash was like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being taken down a peg or two. I was like, oh my poor, poor butt. Um, but it was it was worth every shot, every single shot. That's awesome. So fabulous. Thank you so much, Melissa. We are so grateful that you're so welcome. You talked to us and that yeah. shared shared your story. And I'm so happy for you that it worked out relatively smoothly smoothly, all things considered, and that um that you had such a lovely journey. And I hope um I hope you're getting a little bit of sleep <laughs> right now, knowing you have a few week old at home. Like I'm sending you all oh, wow. the sleep vibes. So, <laughs> may, may she sleep, may she eat easy. Easily, may she poop the first time without drama. Like all of all of the happy mom <laughs> No colic. Her digestive system is working well. No colic, and she's now sleeping in three hour gaps. So I'm uh, really living the charmed life. Over <laughs> Thank you for all of all of the well wishes. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much for um, for hanging out with us today and and really telling us all about your journey. We we are grateful for that. So um, and to our audience, thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. So hop on by. Leave us a like or a follow and say hi. You can also visit us on fertility.sensensor.com to submit specific questions that you have about fertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We also would love to hear episode ideas. So let us know what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.